Join me this morning, if you would, once again in the Gospel according to Numbers. The Gospel according to Numbers, and we're going to be in chapter 21, and we're going to read the remainder of this chapter. I love to see what God's Word has to say and then how He fulfills it. You know, so often the prophecies or the statements that, let me say that, the statements that we find in the New Testament where it says, and thus it was fulfilled, we go over to the Old Testament and we say, I am so thankful that the New Testament said this because now I know exactly what that prophecy is about. On the day of Pentecost, what a wonderful statement the Apostle Peter brought up. The Holy Spirit led him for, to the text. Over in the Old Testament it said, this is what's going to happen on this day. And he went through it, and you know, if we follow that out, it's going to help us a whole lot with eschatology, because it's already been taken care of. Well, here in the book of Numbers is the fulfillment of another Old Testament passage. In the book of Numbers chapter 21, we are getting closer and closer to the children of Israel entering into the land. We only have about 10 chapters left of the book of Numbers in their preparation for entering into the land. And in this passage of Scripture, Numbers chapter 21, beginning with verse 21, And Israel sent messengers unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying... Now, we're going to have here the, the, the comments that are made with regard to those words, Let me pass through thy land. Now, Israel, in verse 1, is a great group of people. And in verse 2, they are personified as a me. They are considered as a whole. Let me pass through thy land. We will not turn into the fields or into the vineyards. We will not drink of the waters of the well, but we will go along by the king's highway until we pass thy borders. Now, if you just turn back one chapter, we're going to find out that the same comments are made to another king. And he brought out a great host of people, and the children of Israel were led not to do anything but to go another way. Well, notice here in verse 23, And Sihon would not suffer Israel to pass through his border. But Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel into the wilderness, and he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel smote him with the edge of the sword, and possessed his land from Arnon unto Jabbok, even unto the children of Ammon, for the border of the children of Ammon was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all the villages thereof. From Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and taken all his land out of his hand, even unto Arnon. Wherefore, they that speak in Proverbs say, Come into Heshbon, let the city of Sihon be built and prepared. For there is a fire gone out of Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It hath consumed Ar of Moab and the lords of the high places of Arnon. Woe unto thee, Moab, thou art undone, O people of Chemosh. He hath given his sons that escaped and his daughters into the captivity of Sihon, king of the Amorites. We have shot at them. Heshbon is perished even unto Dibon, and we have laid them waste even unto Nophoth, 
which re reached unto Mediba. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent to spy out Jazar, and they took the villages thereof, and drove out the Amorites that were there, and they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan went out against them, and he and all his people to the battle of Endrei. And the Lord said unto Moses, Fear him not, for I have delivered him into thy hand, and all his people, and his land, and thou shalt do to him as thou didst to Sihon king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon. So they smote him and his sons and all his people until there was none left him alive, and they possessed his land. Now, what an interesting passage of Scripture that we might think, well, what does that have to do? Let's just go on and find something exciting in the Scriptures that uh, is here in the book of Numbers. Well, it is a very, very important passage of Scripture that we find that God led to the destruction of the Amorites. The children of Israel are now prepared to go into the land. Now you might ask, what is this all about? Well, turn with me back to the book of Genesis, if you would. Genesis chapter 15. We find that the Lord get left Abraham, or Abram, this message. In the book of Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, we read here beginning with verse 13. Now, much has been taking place here in the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Abraham is learning much about God. God is teaching him much about himself. And in fact, God is the only one that can teach us about God. He must reveal himself to us. We will not catch anything about God unless he reveals it. Now, we'll learn about our God, and we'll learn about the gods of the Amorites. But we'll not learn about the God until God teaches us about him. Well, here in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, and verse 13... And he said, God said, now listen with me, God said unto Abram, Know of a surety. I want you to understand this, underline it, believe it. Now isn't it wonderful that God did for Abraham what he does for every one of his people? God gave him belief. Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. You know when we go over there to the uh, 20, I believe it's the 22nd chapter, the next chapter here, when Abraham is asked to offer his own son. We find out something in the book of Hebrews that Abraham knew from God that if God required the death of his son, he would also raise him up. He went up there assured that he'd come back with his son, that there would not be one of them coming back, that one would be left consumed. Even if he was consumed, God would raise him up. That's the kind of faith that God gives his people. Trust me. Trust me. Believe on me. Leave it to me. Just as we read there in the book of Numbers chapter 21 where it says, The battle's mine. I'll take care of it. Well, notice here in verse 13 of Genesis 15, Know the surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. You know, Abraham doesn't have much of a family yet. There's been some improvision, and then there's a promised son. But he doesn't have much, and he said, your seed, I'm promising you this. You know who the true seed of Abraham is? The church. The church is the true seed of Abraham. 
He is an example that God leaves us with regard to faith. He says, Thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Now, Abraham doesn't even have a family yet, and yet we find that God is declaring to him, believe this, trust this, know this, that your seed will be in a land that they is not theirs, and they shall be servants, they shall be slaves in that land 400 years. Well, as we follow this through, we find out that God is speaking about the children of Israel, and they're going to be servants down in Egypt. They will be servants to Pharaoh and all of the people that are over them, the taskmasters. They shall be servants and slaves to them. Now, why does God say they'll be there for five or four hundred years? And also that nation, verse 14, whom shall they serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy, thou shalt, thou shalt go to thy, Father in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come out hither again. Now notice this last phrase. Now we just read about them over in the book of Numbers. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, isn't that an interesting thing that God would put his people in servitude for 400 years to wait out something, to wait out until the iniquity of the Amorites become full? I think that's interesting. You know, what happened in the garden? God knew exactly what was going to happen in the garden. God was not caught off guard. He knew that Adam, in fact, in the covenant of grace, more than it was permitted, it was purposed that this would happen. He is going to demonstrate a wonderful characteristic about God to a, to a people that he has chosen, and that is he is going to let them know about grace. The angels, the angels are created beings. They're a little higher than we are, and yet, those who lost their first estate are bound in prison waiting for that day when they shall be cast into everlasting fire. The angels who lost their first estate. Aren't you glad that when Adam sinned, God did not treat us as angels, but he is going to permit he is going to decree, he is going to promise that grace would appear. All right, we have some people here. Israel cannot possess Canaan till the Amorites be disposed and they are not yet ripe for ruin. That's what he said to Abraham. They are not, now they are bad, but they're going to get to the point that I will not let them go anymore. They're going to get to the point when the, the iniquity of the Amorites is absolutely full. Now, in that time span, I am going to keep my eye on my people. I'm going to keep my eye on Israel. I'm going to have watch over them as a shepherd doth watch over his sheep. I'm going to know that they are in this pain. I know that they're in suffering. I know that they are in this great fall that came as a result of Adam. 
But don't forget, I will take care of them in the end. I will bring them out of that great pain. I'll bring them out of that great servitude. I will free them from their sin, if you please. The righteous God of heaven has determined that they shall not be cut off until they have reached a certain point known only to God and of their wickedness. There is a point God declares when their sin demands their ruin. Till they come to that point, the seed of Abraham must be kept out of their possession. They will not go in until the fullness of the iniquity of the Amorites is accomplished. Now, this, the Lord spake of this same principle in his earthly ministry. Would you turn with me to the book of Matthew? The book of Matthew chapter 23. In the book of Matthew chapter 23, we have the Lord saying these words. Matthew chapter 23, and there, beginning with verse 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, the Lord is speaking out, and here is a section of woe. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Now, if we literally look at that, that is quite a task that they have selected for themselves in maybe they weigh it out. <laughs> they have admitted, though, the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought to be have done and not leave the other undone. Why did they weigh out or count out or tithe such seeds as these things? Because it is part of their religion. This is what they think they can do to approach a living God. They become religious and they become so religious that they are going to tithe seeds so small it takes a million of them to make a pound. They're going to do that. But they have missed the point. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat. Now we know what a gnat is. That's that little bug that flies around. It's about that big around that bites. And sometimes you can swat them out of the air, but most of the time we miss them. We had, when we were visiting one time up in Alaska, there were gnats that could crawl through the screen that my father-in-law had on the windows. Yucky things that came in after you. So small, smaller than a grain of sand, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ says you will strain at swallowing a gnat and swallow a camel. You have, you have so mixed up what is needful. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but wherein is full of extortion and excess. And we find out that that's exactly what religion wants to do with us, they want us to look like sheep, but they can't take care of the inside. There's no way that they can take care of the inside. Thy blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, and the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whitest sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but wherein are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. 
Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers of them in the blood of the prophets. And this same people are going to be demanding the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them that kill the prophets. Notice verse 32. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. What did he tell Abraham in the book of Genesis about why the children of Israel would not go immediately into the land? They first of all must wait until the fullness of the iniquity of the Amorites. And Jesus Christ is sharing with us here that you, you Pharisees, you scribes, you religionists, you will, you must fill up the measure of your fathers. You're going to come to a point that God has determined before the foundation of the world that you will go no farther. You cannot go any further. You know, in the book of 1 Kings, Ahab followed after the idols of the Amorites. 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21, we read this, that there, this, this thought of the Amorites continues down. The religion of the Amorites continues down. God took care of them there in the book of Numbers chapter 21, but their religion continues on. And here's a king of Israel, 1 Kings. If you turn there with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 21. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25, we read these words. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of God, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols according to all the things, as did the Amorites whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and wept softly. Do you think that Ahab had a conversion here? Not because of what follows. He went through the formality, but he did not have conversion. He was just told, your time is about up. Your time is about up. You know, as we think about these things, we find out that God has said the, about the same thing about our generation or the generations to come. Over in the book of 2 Peter, we have here one of the great promises of the New Testament, great promises of God that was prescribed in the covenant of grace. Do you know God in the covenant of grace determined not to have everything filled up and the need for utter destruction of this earth until one thing takes place first. He has chosen a people in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he has determined that he is going to save every one of them. He laid down his life a ransom for them. He went to the cross. He was, went through all that, that uh, uh, what we heard in the Bible class this morning, that the absolute horrendous things that they did to our Savior. Now, it's not that they have not done that to other people, but to the Son of God, they did this. 
And now we find out that God is withholding his hand from absolute and utter destruction of all the Amorites. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, we read this wonderful statement about God. That God has a time when it will be wrapped up. And he has a time when judgment will fall. And he has a time just as judgment came at the right time upon our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon the cross. Judgment fell on him. It was the appointed time. They tried to take him at other times, but it was not the right time. Now, here in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that a day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Now, where did he make that promise? In old eternity. And he's been promising this to every one of his children, and he's been promising this to every lost sheep of the house of Israel. They don't even know the promise applies. We didn't know the promise applied to us until he gave us conversion, until he gave us the new birth. We didn't know that he made a promise on our behalf. But he made a promise. As some count count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but should all come to repentance. Now, who's he talking about there? The usward. He's talking about the church. He's saying, I will not have this wrapped up. I, it will not come to fullness. The iniquity will not come to fullness in this generation or the next generation or ten generations from now until the very last sheep is saved and then the fullness of iniquity will come. I will bring that upon this world as it has never happened before. He did come down in the days of Noah. And he did destroy the world because it was a very iniquitous place. But he saved his people in that ark. Now over here in the book of Genesis, going back to the book of Genesis, we read this about what God did there in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. We find in Genesis chapter 13... And verse 13, that God came down with two of his angels and had a visit with Abraham. What a visit. You know, the Bible tells us that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. I'll come down and visit. I will make my word effectual. I will testify of my great power. I will testify of my great doings. I will promise that I will not wrap this up. Iniquity will not be full until the last one that I intend to save is saved. And when that happens, iniquity for this world will be full and I will wrap this up. Here in the book of Genesis chapter 13, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before God exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up thy eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and northward. And then drop down with me to the verse, uh, uh, chapter 18, 
and verse uh, 20. Chapter 18 and verse 20. We have a continuation of this theme. God came down when Lot took off. He says, I'll take the well-watered plains of the Jordan and the rest is yours, uncle. And he went down towards Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 20. We read these words. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done a altogether according to the cry of it which is common to me and if not I will know I had a preacher one time tell me that see God doesn't know everything God knows everything he just wants us to know everything he wants us to see all right and the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom but Abraham stood yet before the Lord now we know what Abraham did Abraham was told I'm going to destroy that place their iniquity is full Well, who is down there in Sodom that Abraham is related to? Who is down there that is his nephew? Who's down there? And Abraham begins to parley with God and said, would you save that place for 50? You know what the Lord did? Yeah, I'll do that. Well, don't feel too bad, Lord, but what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? And finally, he said, what about 10? And God said, yeah, if there's 10 down there, I'll spare that city. Well, we find out chapter 19. Would you look at chapter 19 and verse 13? These angels are there, and they've met Lot, and he has a family there. And the people that are in that city are just so wicked. Now, we may say that Sodom and Gomorrah is worse than any other place in the world until we find out that God has said that every heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And finally, we have to say they're no different than where I am. I'm the one that has corrupted this place that I live in. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? When we get to pointing fingers at them and saying they're worse than we are, then we're finding ourselves in a very terrible strait. Well, notice here, it says in verse 13 of this chapter, for we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. We're here to destroy this place. It is full and running over. Chapter 19 and verse 16. And while he lingered, you know, how can, how can Lot do what he's doing? He's wanting to stick around it. Well, he's got some sons-in-laws. He's got some daughters there. His wife is there. Family is there. He's made acquaintances. In fact, he's probably got a little bit of authority there. And you know what? God will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until they're taken out. Now, I had a friend I was talking, he says, well, what did God do? Just reach down and drag them out? Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly what he did. And that's what exactly he does for us. He drags us out. He must bring us out. 
We are so centered on staying where we are until God grabs us and takes us out. For it tells us here in verse 16, And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and sent him without the city. The Lord being, you know, God's mercy is demonstrated when he grabs a hold of our hand and pulls us out. His mercy is demonstrated when he takes us where we are and takes us out. And so we find that this happens. And then it tells us that after Lot is taken out, God consumes that place. In verse uh, uh, 19, verse 24, it says, And the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. You know, I read in, in uh, natural history, that, or uh, just regular history, there was a volcano that erupted right there. Well, you're either going to believe that, or you're going to believe what the Bible says. And the Bible says he reigned out of heaven. The iniquity was full. He saved his people out of that city and destroyed it completely. Burned it to the ground. Glass was made. It was so hot. Now we find that his wife looked back. Did she ever leave? No. She physically left, but she never spiritually left. And she was turned to a pillar of salt. The Lord reigned upon that. You know what Isaiah said about this whole incident? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah, led by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that led the Apostle Paul or Peter or James or Jude, or Timothy, or excuse me, that was written to somebody. The same God who gave them that message said this in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. What's he saying? If I hadn't exercised my grace, if I hadn't done something beforehand, if I had not chosen a people beforehand, they should have had rained on them this pillar of fire from heaven and destroyed them. Because that's what's going to happen when the fullness of iniquity comes. You know, we find the Lord Jesus made this comment about Sodom and Gomorrah. He is there among Israel in his day. And he says this to a whole bunch of people that claim to believe Genesis about Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what he said? If the works had been done in Sodom that you have seen, they would have remained until this day. If the works that you have seen, if the if they had seen me like you see me, they would have remained until this day. You know, God is over all things, sovereign. Now, in Second Peter chapter 2, we find another message about this man, Peter. In Second Peter chapter 5, another message about this man, Lot. Things could not happen to Sodom. The children of Israel could not enter the land until 
the fullness of the iniquity or the iniquity of the Amorites was full. They would be held back for 400 years in servitude and 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Now, this is several hundred years promised to Abraham before the events took place. Here in the book of 2 Peter, we find these words about a man who lived in Sodom, a man who lived in near Gomorrah. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we read these words. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person. What is he talking about? This punishment is not for everybody. This punishment is for those without God, without Christ. And who did he save in the days of Noah? Noah and his family. You know, after all that preaching, I don't know how many years, it took 600 years to build that ark, and he's a preacher of righteousness, you'd think when it comes to our fleshly opinion, there would have been more converts than that. Eight people, and yet that's what God said. After all that preaching, there was eight people that got into that ark. Now, here in the days of, of Sodom, it says in verse uh, uh, 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example to those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot. You know, a preacher told me that word just meant right there, only Lot. That's not what that word means. That means that word means justified or righteous. God had worked to work a grace with Lot. And we, well, how can you tell it from what he's doing and where he's living? You know, we may not be able to, but he does. He knows the difference. He was righteous Lot. He was justified Lot. It tells us here, though, as it talks about him, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Where he lived vexed him every day. But it took God to get him out of it. Sodom Gomorrah. Just as we read there in the book of Numbers chapter 21, the very people of God were prevented from entering into that land until the iniquity of the Amorites was full. Now, did you notice, go back there with me to the book of Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. A little bit more that we want to take out of that as we find that God's purpose was being fulfilled and there was not going to go in until exactly the right time. You know, when we read in the book of Exodus, it tells us that when the children of Israel were freed, it was 400 years to the day. Not a day before, not a day after, but to the day. Now, they were down there for 430 years, it tells us in another place. But they were there 30 years. Why, their captain was truly Joseph. He allotted to them their food. He allotted to them their places and everything else. But when he died, it says there was a king arose who knew not Joseph. And that man put them in servitude. And that man and his, those after him for 400 years kept them in servitude. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites was not full, and when it was full, they are going to overcome. So 400 plus 40 is 440 years after that, we find them overcoming the Amorites. Now, here in the book of Numbers chapter 21, down there in verse 34, 
And the Lord said unto Moses, this is going to be serious business. I'm glad that our, the arms of our warfare are not physical. The arms of our warfare are spiritual. We have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes where no other sword can go. We may kill somebody with a sword, but we can never get them saved with a sword. And here we find in this passage, the Lord said unto Moses, Fear him not, for I have delivered him into thy hand and all his people and his land, and thou shalt do to him as thou didst to Sion king of the Amorites, which dwell in Heshbon. So they smote him. Now, what a wonderful message that God gives to the church. We heard part of that this morning when Mike read Psalm 98, verse 1 through uh, the, the whole psalm. But I'd like to read the first verse again of Psalm 98. You know, the battle is not ours. Never has been, never will be. We're the recipients of the victor. We're the recipients of victory. We're recipients of God. He gives every one of his children the victory. Oh, from time to time, we may be like some of the other old saints. Says, I don't see it too much, but the promise is there. By faith, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Well, here in Psalm 98, this wonderful psalm that in it declares what God is going to do. It says, O sing, Lord, a new song. For he hath dealt marvelously, done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. What does that mean? He prophesied years before the event, I am going to win the victory at the cross. No one will hold me back. I will. It may look like it. And all of my disciples are going to think it is. And even after the resurrection, there were those who could not comprehend what took place. But every step of the way, he knew he had the victory. He was winning the victory. He won over sin, death, hell, and the grave. This is our Savior. And that's the one that promised Moses and the children of Israel victory. When they went into the promised land, I only read of one time that there was any of the soldiers of Israel that were slain. And that was taking Ai. The rest of the time they went into battle, they didn't have any graves. They didn't bury any of their people. They were used to take on everybody else. And thus it is with our Savior. Here in 1 Corinthians, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have these wonderful words about our Savior and His victory that He has for us. He's won it. He is the great victor. He's the winner of all battles. He went into battle against sin and won over. What does it say? I've given double for all your sins. As if I would pay for them double. Where grace abound, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now here in verse 57 of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's why he does not require our will. He does not require our works. He does not require our righteousness. He does not require anything from us. 
The only thing that we bring to the equation is our sin, and he has promised to save his people from their sins. So he has given the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the captain of our salvation. In 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, we have this passage of scripture that encourages us to the bone. Oh, the necessity of the new birth. And yet, we can't produce it. Ye must be born again. And there's not a word in the scripture about us doing that. We can't accomplish it. I've asked many people, how much did you have to do with your physical birth? And you know they all answer the same thing. Nothing. And I said, do you expect that you're going to be participating more in your spiritual birth than you did in your physical birth? We don't contribute anything. In fact, when we do contribute, we're not getting it. Well, here it tells us, for whatsoever is born of God, he by his own will begat he us. Ye must be born again. It is an absolute essential. What? You shall not see. You shall not enter the kingdom of God without the new birth. And this is of God. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. What is it? I trust God. He is all my salvation and he is all my hope. And finally, if you turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Now God in his infinite wisdom and his wonderful mercy has determined that this world will not end until he has saved all his elect out of it. There will not be one person whose name doesn't have a check by it. They will all be checked off. They will all be raised to newness of life. They will all be regenerated. They will all be saved. They will all count him as their savior. They will all have faith in God. They will, they will do exactly what God requires of them. Trust the Lord and don't move a muscle. But when that happens, when the last one is saved, this world will be over. It will be over. There will be nothing holding back. We don't have to wait for any signs to be fulfilled. The only thing we wait on is God's gospel going out to wherever they are. And I know from what the Bible has to say that either God will send a preacher or he will draw those people to where a preacher is to hear the gospel. And the gospel is not this stuff that we have around us today. It is the gospel of his truth, the truth of the gospel. All right, Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. Let your mind run a little bit. These are metaphorical statements. The literalness is not here. Let it run a bit. Do you think that Jesus is a package of wholesome bread when you hear him say, I am the bread of life? No. He's our food. He's a sustainer. Do you think it's some manufactured door when he says, I am the door? No. Do you think of that bottled water that we got on that ship 
that tasted so terrible when you hear him say, I am the water of life? No, he's the living water. Well, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass with having harps of God. You know, the greatest beast. You know what I know about this? The greatest beast. It's not something of some manufacturer that someone's going to have come. My greatest beast is Norm. And what does he say? He's gotten the victory over the beast and over his image. You know what? What kind of contrivance do we normally naturally have about God? And God says, I'm not like man. We've got some figure. And over his mark and over his number, you know, I threatened one time I was going to put this number over the door of my wood shop, 666. And kids just had a, oh, no, what's that? Oh, no. You know what that means in the scriptures? 666? We're sinners by nature, sinners by practice, and sinners by choice. Six is the number for man, and every bit of us is contaminated by the fall. Every body, mind, and spirit, every bit of us. That's our number, contaminated in the fall. What does three R's, got to say them again, three R's, ruined by the fall. Second one, redeemed by Christ. Third one, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The gospel of God's glorious sovereign grace in three letters, the three R's. May God bless you, Brother Mike, if you'll come.